0: So we're, we are, um, we are uh, just beginning really the Parami series. We had two talks on generosity and now we move into virtue. <laughs> All of a sudden everybody's head goes down, so it's like looking at the rug. <laughs> it's like being in a cl- physics class and hoping the professor doesn't call on you. <laughs> Well, for most of us, when we bring up the word virtue, we are ten feet behind whatever expectation we might have of being virtuous. But thank God that isn't what we're called on to do here. We're just called on to examine where we are in relationship to this enormous topic. And so we'll have a couple of talks on it. The second talk will be on integrity, because I think that's a kind of, of um, completion of virtue is the sense of wholeness. And so we'll start tonight talking about some of the practical elements of virtue, but in in essence, virtue is not uh, a sense of being good or being morally correct, uh, because none of us can withstand the mistakes of a lifetime and maintain that disposition. But rather, it's to be um, fully connected and to... Uh, through that full connectedness of mind, uh, there is a um, an aspiration, an aspiration, an inclination uh, towards the betterment of oneself and others. Hmm? Non-harm. Most of us can relate to that, even at this point in our practice quite likely we have come to a place where we don't want to harm someone. We may feel the knee-jerk response to say something mean, uh, and sometimes it may slip out, but basically our lives are not about harming other people or ourselves. In fact, we get some sense that non-harm has a basis within the very perception of of a wakeful mind. So let us look at that, because I want to I go into that a little bit. Uh, the, the most, often the most obvious realities uh, are the ones that we uh, have the hardest time seeing. Uh, and the, an obvious example of that would be uh, when we're driven by an emotion. We may not even realize we're being driven by the emotion. We just assume the fact of the emotion. Let's say we're lonely. And we say, well, I think I'll go to Sims tonight because I, out of that feeling of loneliness, drives us to companionship or group, um, a group, so that we can uh, sort of get out of that loneliness. And we just assume the truth of that emotional, uh, the emotion that's in us. We don't, we don't test that assumption. We don't turn back on the emotion and hold the emotion and look at it to see whether we are being driven by it. We just assume the truth of it, don't we? And so much of, the, uh, of our reality comes from uh, being unconscious and just assuming a fact about it. Now, let me uh, present an assumed reality that most of us have. And that is the reality that we are the center of the universe. (laughs) Look and see if our experience doesn't justify that feeling of being at the dead center of everything. All our experiences come like a vortex into us, don't they? And it has been that way throughout our entire lives. It's our default position And it's no wonder that we feel self-important because we're at the center of everything that comes in. All of the sense data, all of our thoughts all come into me. And that position of being the center is an assumed fact. Assumed fact. We don't really check it out. We don't look at it. We actually... Like it, because it gives us a sense of uh, of being in control. And even though we will tolerate other people's opinions, our opinion is the one that really matters, because we're the center. And even though we can, other people can communicate their ideas to us, or their thoughts, or their emotions, still ours are much more uh, accessible. And therefore relied upon. Now, we kind of like it this way because the world's in front of us and we kind of are the monarch. We're in a, the, the, the royalty in this thing. And you can see that from this position, we can play God, can't we? I mean... We may not think of it in this terms, but it never dawns on us that reality could be misperceived. That this may not be the fact of us being the center uh, and the principal player of it all. And so, you know, why should I give up my seat here? You can see, you can feel the power that taking such a central position, such a central seat, like being on stage, having everybody, you know, it's like all coming into you. And uh, so why should I change it? The problem, I mean, there's a problem with it, obviously, is that the rest of the world is outside of you. When we, If we're going to take a position of of prominence, then there's the rest of the world that is trying to get in. And so you can see immediately the sense of isolation that such a central figure takes on the stage of things. And this being cut off uh, and being uh, separated from. And uh, what this requires of us is to feel the pain of the isolation rather than the pleasure of the throne. Uh, And so we get caught between those two and sometimes we resist uh, searching and investigating the undercurrents of the pain that such a position ultimately holds so that we can play out our position a little longer. And so um, a, a... Sophistication or maturity in Dharma is the willingness to look at that assumption and test its validity, to ask questions about it. And we do that, of course, by making this position, this assumed position of being the center of the universe, conscious. And it's through making it conscious that the rubs of life become very obvious to us where we're, uh, the, and it begins, the, the rubs, the uh, pain and suffering associated with position begins to be much more the focus of our attention than uh, the egoic stance of having everybody come into me. So how do we change this, you see? How, once we uh, feel the rub, and we no longer want to be the center. We feel the limitation of that position. What do we do? When I remember, I think I spoke about this one, one other time. Uh, as a small child, uh, maybe uh, 12 years old or some such age, where I could feel that I couldn't let anything else in. That it was all coming into me, but I couldn't bridge the uh, the space I couldn't bring anybody in with me, and I was I felt very alone in my own mind, and not only that, but I felt very repetitious in the way I thought and felt and reacted to things, very confined in there somehow, which probably was the precursor pain that led me to seek refuge out of it. But at some point, in whatever uh, whatever age. It dawns on us, we begin to feel the limitation of that positionality. And there are a couple of ways that we can do it. One of those is to ask who is that center and begin to investigate the sense of the person who has taken up that central casting figure uh, and role. Uh, And uh, we do that automatically when we sit. We shouldn't feel like these are things that we're not already doing. When we sit and we allow our mind to be seen for just what it is, we begin to uh, pick apart that central casting uh, role of me and begin to see that things are just coming and going and that there's no consolidation of an entity behind any of it. And that happens automatically if we sit properly, if we sit in the, uh, in, uh, the white right, in a wise uh, alignment to our mind. So that's one of the ways that we do it in this tradition. But the other is that um, you allow consciousness to expand beyond its limits. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that you take on the paramis. Because the paramis will blow your mind out of the water. Like we have been talking about generosity. Right? That is a infinite, I mean, generosity. Just to get close to it, you have to ratchet it down to something just so that you can make sense out of what it means in a very limited sense, maybe uh, in offering a dollar to somebody who's begging or offering attention to somebody who needs attention. But the sense of generosity itself Blows the central figure of me and all the world. It blows it out of the water, and suddenly we're in a different dimension. If we can hold uh, or become, uh, if we have any um, intention to to just know what generosity is, to incline our mind towards it, suddenly all of the ways that we limit generosity—that that central me—that's at the vortex of the triangle we see as a limitation of generosity. So as we surrender that contraction over and over again to the word generosity, suddenly we find ourselves expanding way out beyond the the, the central figure of I, me, and mine. Because what does it ask of us? What is, what is beyond the constriction? Awareness. Awareness isn't vortexed. Awareness isn't confined uh, by definition or by image. Awareness doesn't perceive life coming into it. It doesn't hold a a place uh, as uh, in role or image. Awareness uh, feels an equality of participation in whatever it's aware of, wherever awareness lights. And it's only when we come, become fearful or constricted within that awareness and identified with some response or emotion out of that awareness that this sense of being the central figure in the universe arises. But I mean, just as we speak right now, just being allowing ourselves to relax, suddenly, if we're willing we become spacious in that relaxation. And the mind, which was once seen as a very confined and located um, place, uh, expands with it. And we feel no longer located just within the confines of our own thoughts. And so when we take on the word generosity, it keeps breaking that con- contraction apart. And with the parami, see the paramis are awake. And we, when we perceive a parami, we have to perceive from wakefulness to join it. And to do that, we have to release the tension of the individuation and isolation of me. Generosity. Wow. Right? So now we're approaching another subject. Virtue. Wow. Right? I mean, I, won't, I don't want to get in line with this one. This one is like, I'll get in line with generosity, but virtue is like, oy, <laughs> from day one. Right. So the backup, the back uh, knowledge of regret and remorse really uh, coalesces around this word. And so we have to be very careful because when it coalesces, we get caught back in the constricted and confining element of the perceiver of I, me and mine. And so when we open up to virtue, as a subject for investigation, we can't define it from being the center of the universe because we have not been up to the to our throne monarch. We have been in every way, every day, perhaps many times in the course of the day, have not been up to that task. So if we look at it in terms of the sense of self, we're all miserably failed. We've miserably failed on this word. So we can't do it that way. This isn't a this isn't a call t- towards self-assessment in terms of how awful you are. We all end up with an F, right? Can't do it this way. So we have to look at virtue from a different from a different way, from a different question, from a different point of view. Uh, but it follows generosity if we hook the word together uh, with generosity. Generosity is open abundance where there's time and space for all. And sila or virtue is really the willingness within that generosity, within the space of generosity, to hold that sense of connection and non-harm, to be generous not con- contracted within that space. If we're contracted, then we look for uh, we we look towards judgment and an opinion. But if we're open and abundant, then we see uh, and behave with nonviolence and nonharm. You see, and it's an, also an offering that we that we live with. In fact, uh, the um, Buddha had a beautiful quote here about just this. He said, uh, in doing and being virtuous, he or she gives freedom, gives generosity, gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limit, limitless number of beings. In giving freedom from danger, in giving freedom from animosity, in giving freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings, he or she gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. So there is this, as I was mentioning when we talked about generosity, there is both the gift of Harmlessness that we are offering, but in return there is reception of non-harm that we receive. It's beautiful to feel that coming at you when we express it. It it it's kind of magical a little bit. Um, I'm sure some of you have felt sort of the protection that the Dharma sometimes gives you. You know, I don't. You know, I sometimes I see things on TV or in a movie and I just, I can't believe that. I don't know where that comes from because my life has not been around that kind of seedy quality of deceit and manipulation. And, and uh, it's, it's just not something that I experience on a daily level. And it's, I don't avoid it. It's just that that's not what comes around me. And it's when we hold a stance of openness... Like attracts like. And you begin to see that your life begins to change in accordance. Good people's company we seek and seek ours out of turn. And there's this beautiful reciprocity of non-harm being given back as we offer non-harm. And it's just, it's a delight. It's a delight to be around good people. In fact, once the Buddha... Said that the, the sangha is really meant for that purpose, you know, being around good people and just the joy of that. Uh, so you begin to feel that that this is being given back as well as being offered, in some kind of um, poorly understood way. It comes back to us karmically. I don't understand how the mecha- mechanics of all that work. I just know that it does. And that sense of being kind of protected, not shielded and not avoiding, but just kind of protected within this dharma uh, is also something that uh, my teacher uh, early on was used to talk about. I thought, I don't feel that. But I do now. And just So I hope you do as well. So, Celia is um, it's just concern for others' welfare. Think of it like that. Just concern. See, when we're just vortexed as the center of our universe, other people are outside of us. Concern for their welfare is something that we have to effort our way into empathy. It's not a natural default position of ours. But when you take on a word like generosity, and move it into virtue, then a person's welfare is as important as your own. It's not something that you have to try to configure your way into. It's just automatically present with the awareness when it's the awareness isn't being confiscated by the me, the sense of me. Awareness has in its heart, the heart, of other people. And so you, you see someone in pain and you feel for them. It's not saying, okay, now I know they're in pain and I should be feeling something. Let me work my way into some kind of empathy here. It's not a dialogue within oneself, it's an automatic response. And so um, I think of virtue more in terms of that awareness of others of others and what their needs are. And then offering a life dependent upon that observation as opposed to being good. Being good will just catch us within its own um, statement of... and will further contract us back into the center of the universe because once we're good, we're not good enough. And there's, we can be much better than we are. And so we're on a whole track of evaluation and judgment and consideration and self-ponderance and all of that, which is endless, and you don't get out of it. In fact, it keeps you bound much more than it allows any kind of expression within that. And in the in the course of needing ourselves to be a certain way, we create the shadow of the way we're not. And that shadow doesn't go away, it follows and looms with us right along all the way. So we end up... Uh, in action, often breaking the very uh, statements of morality that we so wish ourselves to be. So it doesn't work. I mean, if it worked, fine, but it just doesn't work. In fact, if you don't feel a certain depth of kindness and consideration of others within the teacher, you probably should leave the Sangha. Because if that isn't being manifested... In some way, then, I mean, I've been in a a particular community in which there was a lot of wisdom, but there wasn't any kindness. And so, even though the wisdom was present, the awakening wasn't complete. Because awakening without kindness is incomplete awakening. And it still has that contraction around the sense of me. So, you start. Looking at that. So kindness and stillness. So how is it, how will virtue help free the mind from self-centeredness? So that's the question at hand. So let's look at some of the ways that that works. First, it allows us to counter the distorted view of I, me, and mine, which I just mentioned. We step out of the Eye perception. From the eye perception, you can't be, uh, you can't hold the world uh, in an abundant way. You can't see and connect with the pain of others. From the eye position, everything is cut off. with so much gap and distance between you that the other other people aren't approachable or reachable. So, the first thing it does is it allows us to step out of that. Because we see that unless we do, we just get caught up in the same reconditioning and focus of of myself, around myself. And that has such a limiting and isolated position. It feels so awful that we start surrendering that contraction when it starts occurring. And the more we surrender that contraction when it occurs we find that the more our heart is available for other people and therefore more virtuous. You know, uh, don't underestimate that sense of pause uh, that we ask in life from you occasionally where uh, the willingness just to stop and consider What, uh, how we're moving in the moment and what we're about ready to do. Uh, And the precepts are a beautiful indication that we are about ready to do something that may come from two different positions. It could come from a virtuous position of abundance or it can come from the struggle and contraction of need. And that pause allows us to reconfigure the perception so that we act in accordance to the way we want to act rather than in accordance to the knee-jerk response of being the center of the universe. So the pause is extraordinarily helpful. and the precepts are framed in terms of pauses. I undertake the precepts to refrain from, to pause before I just uh, do this thing absent-mindedly. And that sense of pause allows the circumstances to be taken in, to be accounted for, to be to be seen and to to see whether, the action that I'm about ready to take has others' consideration within that movement or whether it's just coming from the selfish me of the sense of my own desires. So build a pause into your life from time to time. One of the nice ways to do it is every time you hear a bell, pause with a bell. And bells are numerous. I'm talking about horns, telephone rings, Pagers going off—all of the different ways that the sounds of the environment get into us in terms of an announcement of something, the little dings of that email has arrived—and just pause before we get in. to break that roller coaster feeling of the momentum of the rush is very useful. You know, in uh, the beginning class that many of you have taken, I offer uh, what I call markers. Marker is an activity that they pause and do thoroughly. Now, in in addition to that, I ask them to sit for 30 minutes a day and to do a marker. So now we're talking about a simple marker that may last less than five minutes, like brushing your teeth. And just paying attention, not letting your mind move away from that into the future of what I'm going to do after I brush my teeth, but just stay absolutely with the activity of brushing your teeth. So I ask you, which one do you think is more difficult for them to do? The 30 minutes of sitting or the 4 minutes of brushing the teeth? Exactly. The 4 minutes of brushing teeth, by far, people will complain, I can't do them, I just can't do it. Why? Because once we're up and get things moving, that momentum of movement, that force of continuity of conditioning washes us away from any consideration of what we're doing or the effects of other people on what we're doing. And so the pause that we are inviting in when we, before we take an action that has a critical element Uh, before we lie, before we take something, before we put, uh, smash the mosquito or whatever we're about ready to do, that pause allows us, it's the pause of brushing our teeth. It allows a more complete consideration. It's a pause of actually sitting and allowing the contraction from where we're about to act to be expanded so that it's that it's not just coming from me, but coming from others' welfare as well. Secondly, the other way that working with virtue helps us in our life and practice is that it allows a lightness of mind. It is much lighter to preserve than to destroy. Uh, And it really, uh, there's a lot less drama in your life when you just start taking other people into consideration. Now, if you're if you love the drama in your life, then you're not going to want to do that. If you feel that uh, a sense of a sense of purpose and meaning from the drama or sort of an engaged nobility within the drama, then you won't. And by definition, you won't want to be virtuous. Because when you are, a lot of that stuff just doesn't come up in your life anymore. A lot of it just doesn't—it just doesn't come up. But the beauty of it is that something else has space to come in. And if and when we aren't uh, investing our life within the dramatic activities of conflict and argument. That leisure that's there can be converted into space. Do we have to fill every moment of the day with something? How are we when we're not, when we don't have something immediately to do? Are you restless? Are we bored? Are we agitated? Are you pacing, are we pacing? Or can we sit there and let it turn or convert itself into space? You see? That lightness of mind is extraordinarily important in the practice because it's only from the from having access to that space that exploration can occur. Where you can begin to see and respond and investigate the feedback element of the mind that's constantly being present. So that when you're lonely, as I mentioned, you don't act from the loneliness. You don't become a lonely person. You question what the loneliness is. You look at a different way to hold it. You give it a different level of space. And therefore, it doesn't confine you into its meaning that I am lonely. It's just a moment expression of a state of mind that doesn't have anything to do with you whatsoever. But without the leisure to be able to explore what it is that's occurring immediately behind myself, the closest thing at hand, as I mentioned, without the leisure, we will just be driven by that. And we'll find ourselves acting endlessly from that. Third. It limits paranoia and shows and gives us an upright posture. It, I've mentioned this before, but I just want to mention it again. That virtuous action, you don't, we don't have to wonder if we're going to get caught at something. When you know that you're doing things from your heart, from the, your best intentions... And you don't think that, there's no uh, feeling that somebody's going to catch you in something. So it allows you to arrive in posture and in attitude and become embodied within yourself. Have you ever told a lie, we've all told lies, but have you ever told a lie where you're so worried that somebody's going to find you out that you keep Doing deceitful things to cover over, it's like Watergate. <laughs> it's to keep from being discovered. That kind of paranoid application of effort, you see, is, we're completely free of that. We're here. We don't have any excuses. We don't have to give an excuse for being here. We don't have to apologize. No apology is necessary for our orientation, for what we're saying or what we're doing. Our intention is always clear because it's not meant to be deceitful or harmful. We may make mistakes and say things that are harmful and, and be sincerely willing to learn from feedback, but it is never intentional. It's not something we set out to do. And so we know our place on earth. And we feel completely unapologetic to where we are and how we are. And so much of our psychology has to do with feeling like we're a walking mistake. Like there's something about us that we shouldn't be here. Partially from our ethics, but also mostly from our sense of inadequacy. And so this really helps heal that. So that we can look somebody in the eye rather than looking down at the carpet when we meet them. And our handshake has a firmness of resolution a being rather than an apology of being. The other thing that occurs when we aren't moving in fright for uh, from uh, the fear of being discovered is that the stability of our consciousness settles. And in Buddhism, it's called samadhi. Our samadhi establishes itself firm. There's a firmness of mind. And from that firmness of mind, which is why the Buddha taught, when he when he was asked what he taught, he said he taught sila, which is virtue. He taught samadhi, which is firmness of mind. And he taught wisdom. And each of those feeds into the other. When we have Virtue. We have this this unapologetic posture of life. We also have firmness of mind that knows what we are, where we are, and why we are here, without excuse. And that firmness of mind, that steadiness of attention, allows us to see life the way it is, rather than to constantly be skirting the issues or trying to find a way out of the deceit that we have created. This is essential. It's essential. This isn't just idle activity. This is essential activity for us to wake, be awake. So, fourth, it allows the past to be seen as the past. When we are virtuous, when we are no longer um Uh, concerned about our remorse and our guilt when we have forgiven ourselves sufficiently so that we are contemporary to ourselves when we are living our reality rather than regretting our reality, which comes when we have started to work from now, interconnectedly from now, rather than protectedly from now, rather than trying to protect my sense of me from now. But when we, are, when, when we just start expanding out in now, we begin to see very clearly that all of the uh, conditioning that comes into now is from who I've been in the past. Right now, I'm not that person. Right now, I'm holding a non-harm attitude, a spacious openness, a connectedness to other and a concern for other people's welfare. And in that, there's abundance, there's space. That doesn't keep the issues of my past away from me. In fact, it gives access so that those things come rushing forward. You take the top off the box, the demons come out. But the demons are seen as what I used to be, not what I am now. And so we can clearly see that what we used to be is what we used to be. That I, I can't do anything about the mistakes I've made except continue to allow those things to move through me but not act from those old patterns. And therefore, it doesn't stop or rest the pain. It just doesn't re Uh, The pain doesn't get represented as something, as some sense of defensiveness I need to take up now, or some sense of further remorse I need to have, or sense of guilt or shame in this moment at all. And so we begin to see the past as the past, through this willingness to be present, virtuously present to our mind and to others as well in our field. If we offer, as I've mentioned, the gift of non-harm and open-heartedness to others. We become living metta. Metta is also a parami, by the way. So you begin to see how each of these paramis feed into the other. And it's not, we're not talking about idealization here. We have character issues, every one of us do. But the willingness not to stay contracted means that our hearts are going to open when they're not in spaciousness, in abundance. In fact, in abundance is the very definition of an open heart. In gratitude, in generosity is another way of saying it. And that's felt. That's felt. And sixth, it's—I don't speak about this often, but it's worth mentioning, and it's certainly mentioned in the Buddhist tradition quite often—is that it frees us from unwholesome karma, frees us from uh, from. Uh, It's the gift that the Buddha was talking about, the gift that comes back to give. And when we're not constantly creating deceit, we live in a deceit-free mental state. And that's what also comes back at us. It comes from offering safe passage. When we are willing to allow and respect other people's motives as well as our own, when we're willing to take other people into our heart, we are essentially giving them safe passage to be themselves. I love that sense of safe passage. Because we're not leaning into anybody. Nobody feels like they have somebody watching them over their shoulder. That their autonomy is respected. Their presentation is fully respected. And we offer that safe passage to our own internal processes as well, all of the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings that accompany whatever moment arises. They arise within. We offer each thing, each individual dharma, each thing as it arises, a safe passage. So it's not offsetting them with our opinions, with our judgment, with our, with our. Um, our reactivity. And so what we do within a virtuous life is that we actually do less. When we're not as opinionated or judgmental and not as reactive, we find ourselves quiet a lot. And we find that virtue and quietness and stillness are, are actually one in the same. Because in quiet we are offering safe passage. when we are just attentive, we give everything their the individual right to be and that is the essence of virtue. so you can we can begin to see that from the default position that most of us work on as being the center of the universe, which is full of conflict, full of struggle, full of control, full of power and influence. That's one dimension of life that we can live. Or we can live a life of friendship, of connection, of quiet, of non-dramatic living, of introspection. And that's another way we could live. So the question becomes, do we want to live in struggle? Do we want to live open, heartfelt? Let us not, any of us, assume that Every moment we aren't making a decision to live in one dimension or the other. And it's up to each one of us to be responsible for the decisions that we do make. So when we take on virtue, we're taking on not a virtuous being a virtuous person. We're not taking on becoming more virtuous. Because that is just shining your kingly pos- or queenly possessions but rather opening up beyond that constriction and contraction entirely genuinely considering others genuinely feeling the pain that's there as the per- very perception of life not as something I'm trying to do to be good So it's there that we rest within virtue. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So, the question I ask you as you sit is how are you sitting? Are you giving everything safe passage? Is everything allowed to move as it moves? Or as king or queen of your universe, are you bestowing judgment and the rules of order on everything? Okay, so if you have any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to respond if I can. Yes, sir. Yes, not very much. The question is about the sense of protection you get. And he asked me to elaborate on that sense of protection. And <laughs> I, it's an awkward It's awkward for me to talk about, because usually I talk about things I absolutely know the derivation of and invest. But this is outside of my control, outside of my ability to know it. It's part of the mystery of the universe and how the Dharma works. But if it didn't have that mysterious component, who would want the Dharma, right? And so when you um, set your intentions or your inclinations towards... uh, uh, towards you know consideration towards interconnectedness and however that is defined towards love towards whatever however you want to define your intention that intention when it includes others you you really start considering your actions when your deepest longing is not to hurt anymore we're not an isolated universe in ourselves no matter what it seems to be that is a statement that calls forth a response from the universe of like kind. You see, the reason that we think we are so isolated in this and we don't understand how that works is because we're used to being the throne monarch and our subjects don't have anything to say. But when you begin to see that it's all subjects, there aren't any kings here, that it's all we're all in this together, that it's all one, then... When this one formulates a particular inclination, the one meets it, meets that inclination in kind. And so, uh, it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. It doesn't mean that you won't get sick or die. It doesn't mean that you won't even get robbed. It just means that a lot will be cleared out. There will be a lot less confusion. Um, a lot less drama. A lot less. Uh, you just you're, the people who you find we find ourselves around very naturally are people who have the same intentionality for life, because it feels weird to be around someone who's plotting some kind of a manipulative action. And who wants to, And even if you're at the drinking fountain. And people are gossiping at work; it starts bringing you down into an area of yourself that doesn't feel resonant. You can feel uh, when people are talking about one another in a kind of, you know, gossiping, backbiting way. It just—you can feel your mind, because we certainly have all done it—you feel your mind going in that direction, and you—and and, and it, the 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 energy energetically, you feel the shift in yourself and you, you get, you don't. it's like, whoa, what am I doing this for? This feels awful. It's hurt, it hurts, it feels. And you you, you give them per, complete permission to stay at the water cooler, but you find your way back down the hall or something. So it's, it it's just kind of takes care of itself, doesn't it? Why I particularly I mean I when you really look around and see what how your life has changed and it has changed in this way, that's because of your intention. It's because you want your life to move in this way. And when you really want it, then you won't put up with hanging around people who don't want that for themselves, because it brings you down with it. And so you it just kind of clears its own self out, and you find yourself. Um, uh, just moving easier and things and there is a sense of protection and that's all I can say about how the earth how the world universe responds back other yes yes sir. Well Okay, so the question is having, um, it's in, in certain uh, incidences, the sense of self comes back very prominently. Uh, when that, uh, there either is a self or there's not. Okay? So I would suggest not holding a view on either one of those issues. I would say, let's see. I want to see and I want to get to know this thing. And if there is, fine, I'm out of here. This is a bunch of hogwash. And uh, I'll just give up Buddhism, get out, thank God I escaped in time. <laughs> All right? No, no I mean, I, I hold that, I mean, I, I'm, just because the Buddha said it doesn't mean a thing to me. I'm not going to take it on as a belief system. So, now I'm going to look at this thing. I'm going to see what it is. I'm going to do a study of it. I'm going to make it conscious. And... If the chair starts falling and I come back to a sense of me, what is that sense of me I'm coming back to? That's I should start there where where fear brings me back into contraction. So what happened there? And who is it that is contract, who's, who is it that the contraction is happening around? Now I have to be very quiet when I ask those questions because I'm, sh- I'm no longer shining the light external to oneself. I'm taking the beam, and shine it and back on the, p- the person who's holding that light. And so, I, it begins, I begin to see that the whole thing is habit pattern. Fear brings forth a particular reaction, which brings forth particular activity, and on and on it goes. But each of us have to prove our own emptiness. You can't take it as a matter of philosophy and march it forward. You have to take it as a matter of experience. So here's the other way that we are working with it now. That is, instead of feeling the constriction, feel the space around the constriction. Instead of getting caught up in the sense of me, what is it that even knows the sense of me is arising? What is it that holds that? What is the, the awareness that, uh, that holds and knows all things? So one of the ways you can do this and the way we've been working on it is to take a word like generosity, which is total space, and then when you feel contracted in, within your own uh, selfishness, you don't take the selfishness as fact, you just look at it and see that it's being held within generosity. Right? You wouldn't know it was happening unless the awareness was there to show you it. That which sees the gener- the selfishness is not being selfish. It's being generous and giving the selfishness a safe passage of awareness. Do you see what I'm saying? Somebody please shake your head yes. <laughs> okay. So there... So, okay, I'm I'm feeling selfish. So, what we usually do is we go back into the center of our universe position and get begrudging about our selfishness. And then we have a struggle going on between ourselves and our selfishness, which just keeps me throned. Instead of that, what is it that's holding the selfishness? It's generosity. Which way am I going to go then? Am I going to go... Identifying with the selfishness or with the space that holds it. See? It's not easy. This is not easy because we're looking at the very nature of our conditioning. We're looking at the very monarch. We're looking at the very center of the universe. And we're testing the assumptions on which we have always moved. And we're reframing it. But that's what the paramis do. The parami of virtue shows us where we are contracted and unvirtuous. It'll always show you its opposite. And then you can either get begrudging and resistant and angst angry or fearful of that or you can just allow and offer complete and total non-harm to this thing that's arising and suddenly you find that your identity goes from the contracted sense of selfishness to the expanded sense of non-harm and then we will have touched the power of me of virtue not by being good, but by holding everything that's not without struggle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.